you'll join with me in the reading of God's Word this morning, please. Only let your conduct be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the Gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it's been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Father in heaven, as we stand before you today as a congregation of men and women and children that are trusting in you, we ask you to pierce our hearts today. We ask, Father God, that you would clear our minds, clear our minds from uh, a restless night, clear our minds from the cobwebs of sleep, clear our minds from the fog of false doctrine. Clear our minds, Father God, from preconceived understanding. Help us, Father God, to focus on what you're saying to us today. Help us to apply ourselves to it. That we might learn unity. Father, thank you for this congregation. It's a strong one. But Father, just like Philippi, we can always grow and do more and grow better. Father, have your way among us today. Have your way with me and with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I ask you to be seated. And if you do have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn again to Philippians as we continue our look into that letter of Paul to the Philippian church. We're finishing up chapter 1 and I'm beginning a look into the second chapter. In your Bibles, most of your Bibles will not break it the way I'm preaching it today. Um, they end it with verse 30. And they don't, they don't include or they don't continue on with the next verses until they begin to talk about humility, unity that is formed through humility. And I suppose I should give maybe a clarifying remark about the way I kind of interrupted our worship this morning with some anecdotal comments. I always find myself talking about this in terms of what we're doing here and that what we do as Christians and when we come into God's house and when we present ourselves as followers of Christ, we're not doing it as a matter of a cultural um, addition to our life. That when we come in here, we're coming as professing believers and members of the living body of Christ, committed to more than just agreeing with the doctrine and the things that we teach, but committed to actually doing them. And uh, there is a vast difference. As we come to Paul's letter to Philippi, and as I told you in the last few weeks, it's a letter of gratitude. It was meant to communicate thanksgiving on Paul's part for the partnership of the Philippian church with him in the work of communicating the gospel in the world, both in their financial support, mostly financial and moral support of Paul. Prayer support, financial support, they sent him care packages when he was in prison, ministered to him in Thessalonica and so forth. It was to encourage them on to spiritual maturity. And 
And as we go forward, we'll talk more about that. But I said something in the first couple of weeks that wasn't entirely correct. Because I said to you that the letter to the church at Philippi didn't involve any criticism or any address of a specific issue that needed attention. And I mentioned it like that for the same reason that I think most of us would brush over the issue. In Philippians 4.2, Paul identifies a problem in the church. And the church was uh, divided. There was division in the church. Look at, at, for a minute at verse 2 of chapter 4. Just flip over a couple of pages in your Bible to Philippians 4.2. There it says, I implore Euodia and Syntyche. Those are crazy names, right? I mean, who would name their kids that today? But yet we see some crazy names coming out in this generation. Maybe we need to go back to that. I'm looking forward to hearing or meeting a Euodia or Syntyche in the near future. But it says, and this is Paul speaking, I implore them. I beg them, I exhort them to be of the same mind in the Lord. The Bible doesn't tell us what their disagreement was about. But because Paul is going to now use chapter 2 and chapter 3 to address it in various ways, it's an important problem for the church. Because a church that isn't united cannot have a unified front against a common enemy. Whether it's a false teacher that comes into the church, or it's Satan attacking from outside and persecuting the church. If you don't have a unified front, you can't fight. The devil works inside the church, and he works on the street to break us up, to separate us from one another. And so something as small as this little squabble between Euodia and Syntyche could become something so big. Many, a few of you, um, actually I'm looking at most, most of the generation that's here now wasn't here at the time, but a few of y'all do remember when this church broke in half. It split. And it split. The division was created not so much over personality, but over the direction that we wanted, or the congregation wanted to go in at that time in the church. But nevertheless, it split over discord. And when you're in discord, when the church splits, it's a terrible testimony for one thing to the world around it. And that's no offense. That's, I'm not, that's not why I bring it up today. But I bring it up today because at that time, this church was at its weakest. It couldn't possibly fight against a common enemy because we were too busy kind of struggling against each other. I don't know if that makes sense to you. And I, I don't know enough of the details to go any further than that with it. But see, while the Bible doesn't tell us anything more about the falling out between these two women, how would you like to be remembered 2,000 years later in the Bible or in any other literature as two people who were arguing and squabbling in a church, these people were named that 2,000 years later, they're still being talked about for the squabble they had in the church. And this is the reason, the larger reason, the thematic overtone of, if you will, of, of Paul's correction for the th church at Philippi. Dealing with this issue of harmonious fellowship and unity in the church. In our day, the world is growing so increasingly hostile to the gospel and those who carry it that it's difficult for us to publicize the gospel. But I promise you, if something gets out of hand in the church, if a business meeting gets messed up, if people have words in the church, it's known in the street. And it's not very long before it's known. So they don't, we have a difficult time publicizing what we want to tell, the truth of the gospel, and a really easy time to let everybody know or everybody finds out about the mess and a train wreck that happens at times in 
the church of God. An argument among believers gets around. And the world seizes on that disunity and says, why do I want to be a part of that? I already got that in my life. Why do I want to have this unity? And that disunity hurts the effort of the gospel. Paul expressed, and that expressed concern of Paul in verse 2 of chapter 4, an exhortation in the verses that we're looking at today and for the next several weeks, make it clear that discord among believers makes it harder for the local assembly to successfully get the word out about Jesus. If not dealt with, the discord between those two women could lead to that splitting of the church. No matter what Paul was saying in this first verse as we kind of move forward, he says only. Now only reminds us it's a continuation of the thought that he just finished in verses 26 and backwards. Paul was talking about there that, that uh, he was anticipating his return to the believers at Philippi and the celebration to the Lord, the glorification of the Lord for his deliverance. But he said only, in other words, in the meantime, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He was saying whether he would be released from prison or he would die there in the name of Christ and for the cause of the gospel. No matter what happened to him, Paul wanted believers at Philippi, Philippi to be committed to living a life harmonious, a Christian life that was harmonious with the message upon which it was based. Do you understand what that means? That, that means that we practice what we preach. That, that means that if we, we were saved on the merits and on the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we're going to conduct our life as individuals saved by grace. It means that Christ-centered Christians behave as citizens of heaven. That's the first point. Christ-centered people behave like citizens of heaven. Now, what does that mean? It could mean so much. I mean, in Colossians, we talk about uh, that, that we shouldn't, there just shouldn't be coarse jesting, that we shouldn't, how's it go exactly? The old man is dead, therefore put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication with your lips. Seeing that the old man is dead, or words to that effect, put off these old behaviors. So part of living and behaving like a citizen of heaven is stop living like a citizen of, of earth. Stop conducting yourself in, in worldly ways. But there's a more specific point here. And in order to unpack it, we need to unpack what Paul meant by the gospel of Christ. Now, a lot of y'all have been in church for, I don't want to say forever, but for most of your life, okay? Because forever is kind of insulting. For, for most of your life, you've been in church. And, and so you've heard, you, you, you understand perhaps, what the gospel is. But Paul had a specific understanding or a way of viewing the gospel. And one of the places that we see that in is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. And there in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he said, I delivered to you. In other words, he proclaimed, he declared, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So this, this is Paul's uh, Protos Evangelia. Um, this was his gospel. <laughs> For lack of a better way to put it, I'm not a Latin speaker. 
This is his gospel in a nutshell. Christ died. Christ rose. Christ died for our sins. He rose from the dead. He was, and that he, he this, this is the story. He died for our sins and he rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. Why is it good news? The gospel literally is the good news. Why is it good? Romans 3.23 helps us understand it addresses a terminal condition in our life. Uh, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. 6.23 also tells us the wages of that sin is death. So it, it helps us. It is good because it addresses a terminal condition in our lives that we cannot address ourselves. Secondly, it's God's gift to anyone who will trust in him. John 13, I'm sorry, John 3.16, everybody knows well. For God so loved the world and so forth that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's God's gift to those who will trust in Jesus rather than in our own efforts. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's what? It's a gift of God. So we understand now this is a gift of God. So it addresses a terminal condition. It's a gift to anyone who will trust in Jesus. And finally, it restores us to God. Romans 5.10 For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And John 1.12 But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. So we're restored to God. That damage that was done by Adam and Eve in the garden is now reversed by the blood of Jesus, his shed blood on the cross. And we are the beneficiaries as believers of a restored relationship with God. By faith in the gospel, we become members of the family of God, citizens of heaven by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what Paul was saying with that first verse, verse 27, that first part of it, was that the lives that we lead as people who have believed the gospel should reflect the fact of our faith. Okay? The lives that we lead as believers, as those who have believed the gospel, should reflect the fact of our faith. Well, obviously... Paul spent most of his time now, and he will in the next couple of chapters, on unity. So we move to this aspect of unity. Christ-centered people are inseparably linked in Christian unity. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? You see, Christ-centered people are inseparably linked in Christian unity. How so? The blood of Jesus unites us. There is no separation of that. Now, we can pull ourselves apart. But the fact is, we're still related by blood. We're blood relatives. Did you know? Everybody in this room is related. Not through Adam only, but through Christ because of faith. We are you related. We are related and therefore, uh, as a body, we are, we are family and united inseparably linked together in Christ. The late pastor and author, Ray Stedman, writing on the subject of Christian citizenship, wrote, As Christians, we are fellow citizens of the commonwealth of heaven. And Satan, the enemy, will use two main strategies in his attempt to divide and conquer us. How do we stand firm in one spirit, believing in a manner worthy of this high calling? 
How do we stand? This goes back to the whole unity question uh, that's being created by, or, or the, the, the discord being created by Euodia and Syntyche in the church. And so Satan is in the church. Paul was being persecuted for the transmission of the gospel because he was preaching in the street. But now Satan has come into the church and he is attacking in the church, attacking their fellowship. So how do we stand firm as citizens of heaven in one spirit? Paul mentions two essentials in verse 27 that seem to directly address the threat against our peace and our unity. The, the peace and unity that was identified in trouble in chapter 2 verse 4. First he said the believer should stand fast in one spirit. Stand fast in one spirit. In one sense, this is Paul's exhortation that believers don't allow anything to move them from complete dependency on the Spirit of God. Did y'all hear that? We shouldn't allow anything to move us from complete dependency on the Spirit of God. What we're moved all the time. We're moved all the time from dependency. Every time we cease to depend on God, we fall flat on our faces. We fail. We stumble. See, the fact is that as believers, it isn't enough to rely on our own abilities. But we do that all the time. We rely on our own talents and our own skills and our own abilities to do this and that. In fact, and the reality is that in in coming to faith in Jesus, we came understanding that apart from him, we couldn't do a thing. Jesus declared it in John 15, 5. We could do nothing without him. Nothing to please him and nothing to save ourselves. The life we now live in Christ is Christ living in us, leading us and enabling us and empowering us by his spirit. The 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 declares to us, don't you know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives inside of you? He's taken up residence in us. It's no longer us living in the world. It's him living through us into the world. It's the way it's supposed to be. And he empowers us to do what we read in Philippians 2.13, which is a favorite verse of mine. He empowers us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. God's doing that. God's willing and God's doing within us for his good pleasure. Through his Holy Spirit, he's doing this. God's acting as we submit. A life worthy of the gospel is a life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's another sense to this. It's not just a dependence on the Holy Spirit. There's another sense to this. You see, the, word, the Greek word used in verse 27 for pneuma, when you look back up in the top, I think there's a T-I on the end of the word, which it indicates to me that we're speaking about something lesser than the Holy Spirit. We're speaking about a natural spirit, a spirit of fellowship, a, a spirit of unity. Okay, we're talking about a, something not the same as the Holy Spirit. It's more of a, an attitude or more of a, a condition. And that word seems to indicate that the affiliation we, we share with other believers rather than the Holy Spirit. 
when we talk about standing fast, then in the spirit, it's speaking to standing fast with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I hope that the fog is kind of clearing a little bit because... And standing fast in one spirit then is locking arms together to repel any effort of Satan to divide believers. You understand that? When we have our, our Lord's Supper, when we have communion, the, one of the things I talk about is if there's any uh, issue between brothers and sisters in the church before you come to the table and take of the bread and the cup, resolve the issue with your brother and sister. Go to them, be reconciled to them, and then come and partake of the table. Because we, we want to avoid the division that Satan wants to create among us. A house divided, Jesus said what? Cannot stand. So we want to link arms. And so in a sense, standing fast is to stand fast. Uh, standing fast in the Spirit is to repel any effort of Satan to divide believers. Which, if he isn't stopped, can lead to the dis distraction from the main purpose of the church. He's, Satan ain't just working out there. Now, Satan just ain't, he, he ain't just working in, in school and he's not just at work at work or on the road or whatever. He's not just at work out there. He's at work in here. Spiritual warfare doesn't end when you come through the door. It began when you got up and started coming this way and it continues right on through this time and right on back out the door you go. Spiritual warfare for the Christian is a 24-7, 365 reality that I don't think many of us are aware of. If we were aware of the fact, we would be more diligent to stand in unity and to fight as one man. And that's what this means, striving together. This is the other point, that we should strive together for the faith of the gospel, it says. Strive together. Now, a lot of us think about striving strife. Put them up. You know, it's strife. It's, we're at each other's throats. We're fighting. That's not what he's talking about. It's an athletic term, which means to fight as one man. To wrestle as, I thought of a tag team wrestler. You know what tag team wrestling looks like, don't you? How many of y'all have watched wrestling once or twice in your life? Oh, that's what I know. You know, so, I mean, you know what it is. A guy's tired, he's wore out, and I mean, it gets so dramatic, and he tags the other guy, and he comes in, and he finishes the job. That's what it's supposed to be for, like, uh, that's what it's supposed to be like for us. This is a team sport, if you will. This is a team mission. It ain't for just one guy. It's not just for me to fight the battle. It's not just for Larry to fight the battle. It's not just for Rudy to fight the battle. It's for all of us to lock arms and fight this battle together. You get it? It's a team mission. You see, the enemy's going to use all kinds of petty things to divide us. Carpet color, paint color, music choices, the style of worship. He's going to use all sorts of petty things to cause us to stop talking to each other or to stop us from having anything to do with each other. And we need to be just as determined, as Stedman said, to never let anything but serious heresy keep believers from working side by side in the gospel. You catch that? We need to be committed. We need to be diligent to never let anything but serious heresy keep believers 
from working side by side in the gospel. Listen, if somebody's preaching a works-based gospel, you don't need to link up with that person because they're not believing the same Jesus you are. Uh, I, I was checking out as I was searching at 2 o'clock this morning for pictures for the bulletin. I, and I, I reflected back on the prayer service that we had in the National Cathedral in Washington on September 14th of 2001 after the towers fell. And there seated there was an imam and a Jewish rabbi and an Episcopal priest and uh, various other members of different sects and they were all there to offer prayers to their God just in case one of them was right. That's my take on it. Listen, you don't side up with people that don't believe what you do. Serious heresy is to believe that works is what saves, not Jesus. Okay? That's serious heresy. Serious heresy is believing that the blood of Jesus is not enough. That's heresy. All right? Anything but that kind of stuff should not keep us from working side by side. Anything but that. In Jude 3, Jude speaking, or we read in Jude 3, that our enemy is in view here in Jude 3. False teachers under the leadership of Satan have come in with destructive heresies. I was listening to a brother talk this morning about how those same kind of heresies come into the prison system. And so people come in and they lead Bible studies with inmates, but they're leading Bible studies that have nothing to do with God. And they're feeding them full of junk. And they come out believing junk instead of the true gospel. I'm glad there are a few people out there that are actually doing it the right way. He says that false teachers, uh, Jude did under the leadership of Satan, have come in with destructive heresies against which believers are to contend earnestly in the faith. Contend, that's a fighting term. That means put up your dukes. That means fight. In verse 28, Paul addresses, he added that as believers strive for the faith, they should not in any way be terrified by their adversaries, which is to their adversary a proof of perdition but to you of salvation and that from God. Do you know that Satan's imps come in all kinds of shapes and sizes? They have disguises. We read about it in 1 Corinthians. Sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, that they come as apostles in Christ. They disguise themselves as apostles. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, that they come as wolves in sheep's clothing. It's hard to tell by their appearance what they are. But it ain't hard to tell once they start talking. If you know your word. If you know the scripture. Contending requires that knowledge. Contending requires prayer and exposure to the word and a commitment to the word and a dedication that you yourself are living by the word that saved you. We are called because persecution and resistance come in every shape and size, both within and without the church. Today we were talking about martyring or martyrs, Christian martyrs and such, and that kind of struggle. We're called to resist and contend against those false teachers through the word. 
through the word without fear. Have you ever stood up against somebody who was declaring something to be true when it wasn't and you just lovingly but sternly and truthfully corrected him and said, no, that ain't right? I mean, you've done it with your kids, haven't you? We've all done it with our kids. We'll straighten them out in a heartbeat. What about this? We need to be willing to contend for the faith regardless of the cost against us. Just like Paul. You see, Paul was telling us he's in chains because he contended for the faith and the people he was contending with didn't like it. And he said, follow my example. Throughout this letter, you're going to see, follow my example. Throughout the, God, throughout the epistles, you see, follow my example. Contend against the false teacher through the word without any fear of whatever cost you may incur to life or limb and without fear of whoever it might be posing a threat. In other words, it doesn't matter who it is. Do you understand who was emperor at the time that Paul was in jail? Do you? Do y'all know? Does anybody know who it was? It was Nero. Who is Nero? He's a pretty ugly, ugly guy. This guy would stick people into animal car- uh, and, and, and uh, feed them to the lions. He would, he would put them in the carcasses of animals, throw them in the middle of the Colosseum, and watch they, they'd be consumed by. He hated Christians. This is the emperor at the time. Paul wasn't scared. I want to I meet Caesar. Take me to Rome. Anyways. We can never effectively strive for the faith of the gospel in our own strength. Now that requires dependency on Jesus and on the Holy Spirit. Or while we're striving and squabbling against one another over anything. Whatever your difficulties are, whatever your differences are, resolve them before the sun goes down. Whether it's between you and your wife or you and a church member. Resolve your problems before the sun goes down. Ain't nothing so big that you can't work it out in Jesus. Amen? Jesus said, again, in Mark 3, 23 through 25, a kingdom or a house divided against itself can't stand. And neither can a divided fellowship. And that's why this issue of unity is being stressed. But then Paul said something in verse 29 that really should, if you read your Bible, make you scratch your head and say, what did he just say? Let me read it to you again. It says in verse 29, to you it's been granted on behalf of Christ. That means as a grace. It's been granted on behalf of Christ uh, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Now these last few words of this chapter should make you stop and think for a minute. Is suffering for Jesus' name a gift of grace? Is that what Paul was saying? You betcha. That's what he was saying. How many of y'all accept suffering as a gift of God? Oh, thank you for this present. You don't do that. We don't do that. Did the apostles do that? Yeah, they did. Over there in Acts chapter 5, they were beaten for the name of Jesus. They were beaten for preaching. And Peter and everybody with them, they were warned, they were beaten, and as they went out after they had been beaten and told, don't do it again, they were like, whatever. But actually what they were doing was counting it all joy. They were celebrating that they were able to suffer for Jesus' sake. 
We don't look at it like that today. A lot of us shrink back from anything that might endanger our lives or endanger our our welfare or endanger our reputation or endanger our properties or our material wealth or anything like that. Anything that could be endangered by our taking a a stand, we, we shrink back from it. See, God, his, his gift of grace enabled us to believe that what Jesus did on the cross, he did personally for us. As a gift, we're given to share in Christ's sufferings. Paul will talk about it later in Philippians 3.10. And for the gospel, which we believe, we suffer for the gospel. Have you suffered for the gospel? Has anybody ever told you to shut up? Has anybody ever put you out? Has anybody ever, have you ever lost a job for it? For a stand for the gospel? Uh, what am I saying? Well, go out tomorrow and do this. Go to your boss and say, you know what? <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, are you willing? Will you stand like that? Do you stand? Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 through 12? Some of y'all might remember it. But here's a beatitude. It's not among them, but it is a beatitude. He said, blessed. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus declared it. Hey, man, if you're persecuted for my name's sake, happy are you. Blessed are you. Why? Why should you be happy with that? Why should you consider yourself blessed? Why is the suffering for the Lord's name to be considered a gift, a grace gift, and an honor? Why? Because it speaks to our association with Jesus. It speaks to our association with Him and His consolation towards us. Remember in 2 Corinthians 1.5, it talks about Christ is our consolation and He comforts us so that we who are comforted may help those others who have need of comfort in their time. Words to that effect, it's not an exact repeating of the verse. In fact, let me take you there for a moment just to read it because I don't want to leave that hanging. 2 Corinthians. I'll start in verse 3. It's important for us to hear because this is another beatitude. This is, this is a praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations so we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. No pain can outdo the consolation and comfort of the Savior. And another reason I would put forward as I move out of this section as to why suffering for the Lord's name should be considered a grace gift and an honor is because in our suffering for him we are united together with him it speaks of our unity and our connection to christ first corinthian first oh, i'm lisping now man 
crazy. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. It just speaks to our unity. And this is a great way for Paul to sum it all up. We are unified to each other through the blood of Jesus. And we are unified with Christ. We are, in, we are one in Jesus through his blood. Not we are unified. We are united in Christ. And we are united with one another. We are in unity with the Godhead. And we are in unity with one another through the blood of Jesus. Well, I want to finish up right now basically going back uh, or going forward and briefly touching on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And I, I don't intend to really address it further as we go forward because I feel like verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 is a summary of what we just studied in verse 27 through 30. I feel like it's a summary and there's a break at verse 3 where we move to humility and we start to study the example of Christ to begin with and that's a powerful uh, study for next week. But this, the beginning of chapter 2 serves as uh, a conclusion to the previous words of, uh, on unity of, that Paul gave and as an introduction to his expanded argument now and treatment on the subject of unity. Listen, guys, if you think that I can talk the paint off, my dad thinks I can talk the paint off a car. I just don't shut up. Most of y'all know that. But if you think that I talk a lot, Paul is going to take these next two chapters to drill down on this idea of unity. But listen to what he says here in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, he says, if there's any comfort. Now, do you think he's asking that as a question or is this rhetorical? It's rhetorical. He's not asking this as a question. The answer to every one of these points should be yes. There is consolation in Christ. There is comfort of love and so on. So here's what he says. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Now, this is simple math right here. That verse could preach it. Those two verses could preach themselves right there. That it's, what he says in verse 1 is answered in verse 2. Let me break it down real quick. In verse 1, he says, if there's any encouragement. It says any consolation. The word translated is encouragement or exhortation. If any encouragement or exhortation in Christ, verse 2, be like-minded in adhering and obeying it. Like-minded speaks to obeying. One of the ways to understand it is to obey it, to submit to it, to obey to it. If there's any encouragement or exhortation in Christ, if Christ has anything to say, be like-minded. Obey it. Adhere to what he says. If there's any comfort of love from the Lord, it says, any comfort of love. Simple. If there's any comfort of love from the Lord, have the same love. See, it says, having the same love. Chapter 2, verse 2. If there's any comfort of love, verse 1, have the same love, verse 2, towards each other. What did Jesus say? As I have loved you, what? So you love one another. 
It's a great way to promote unity in the church and it can maintain the strength of the body of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. If we love one another, we believe, according to 1 Corinthians 13, that we, uh, or what we practice if we love one another is we bear all things. We believe all things, we hope all things, and we endure all things. What does that mean? That means we believe the best about people, not the worst. We don't run them down, we lift them up. And I can't think of a better way to build unity in the church than to support one another, even when other people are pointing a finger and trying to break them down. And standing with them, even if they're wrong, standing with them, according to Galatians, standing with them and bearing their burden with them in the love of Christ. So, he says... If there's any comfort from the Lord, comfort of love from the Lord, have the same love, I would add, towards one another, because that's the sense that I get from the words in verse 2. Third, if there's any fellowship, if there's any koinonia of the Spirit, if there's any partnership of the Spirit of the Lord, and there that word pneuma is capitalized in the original language. It is speaking of the divine nature of God. It is speaking to the Holy Spirit there when it says that. If there's any koinonia, if there's any partnership, of the Spirit of God. Be of one accord. That means walk beside one another. The Holy Spirit is in partnership and working with us. The implication and insinuation then is that we should partner with one another and walk side by side in the Spirit. And finally, the last thing as I wrap it up today, if you have received any affection and mercy, both of them speak to pity. Affection and mercy speak to pity, consolation. Passion, empathy. If you received any affection and mercy from the Lord, be of one mind. Exercise the same kindness to one another. Be of one mind. We'll go back to this, this word that implies obey it. Practice it. Act upon it. If there's affection and mercy towards you, demonstrate it towards one another. What did Jesus teach about forgiveness? As I've forgiven you, what? You forgive like that. As I've forgiven you, so you forgive one another. I hear people all the time say, well, I can't do that. No, you can't. Not if we're talking about in the economy of this. But if we're talking about in the economy of the Spirit, yes, you can. You sure can forgive. Okay. So these are summary statements, and I encourage you to take the time to study uh, all of this passage again on your own uh, for any deeper uh, understanding that you might get from it or any meat that may be left on the bone that uh, we haven't already gnawed on. Um, and especially take a look at verses 1 and 2 and see if, if that doesn't play out. That, that, that's just about 1.30 in the morning study, study material right there. But I really feel like the two work together. I really feel like if you read the way the, the literary arrangements that uh, the, the writers of the New and the Old Testament write, you can see an order. They, they present something and uh, they, they, actually they elaborate on something they present a main point and then they elaborate underneath there's always a connection it seems like there's always a connection in these sentences and there's definitely in my mind a connection in verses 1 and 2 but the bottom line is this look as much as you've received from the Lord whatever blessing you've received from the Lord demonstrate it towards one another walk in unity towards one another this is, this is how we walk in unity we are of one mind towards one another we're in one accord. We have the same love towards one another. That's how we believe. I'm sorry, that's how we behave as, as citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven comes from the third chapter of Philippians. It's not something I pulled out of thin air and thought, well, hey, this sounds great. I mean, I'll just use this phraseology. No, Paul used it. But for now, 
moving away from this. The Bible tells us that we're to seek peace and pursue it. Both with those outside and those in the church. Does that mean we compromise to arrive at peace or to have unity? No, we don't compromise it. We've already talked about it today. You don't compromise truth for the sake of unity. You stand for truth. The question comes to me as we get to this point and as I'm looking at all of you and you've looked at me for 16 years and heard you know exactly where I'm going. You already know what time it is. Half of you are thinking, what am I having for lunch? Because none of this has to do with me. Well, maybe it does. Are you a citizen of heaven? Where's your care? You know, can you sing with the guy who said, I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver? and a little gold. But in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. Is your, and I, I, I'm going to tell you this. I don't like that hymn for that reason. I don't care what kind of house I got in heaven as long as I'm where Jesus is. I really don't care as long as I'm where Jesus is. Are you going to be there? Are you trusting in Jesus today? Or has this all been some kind of, is your journey so far? And guys, don't be insulted. Be challenged. Be pricked. Let your heart be pricked. If this, if this hits you, let it hit you. If it doesn't, let it pass. And pray for, the, pray for others. But is your Christianity a matter of sentimentality or reality? This morning I was talking with two little boys about virtual reality because they like to play games and we were talking about the trend is virtual reality. And I said, why would you want to spend all your time in virtual reality when you got all this real reality to live in? Some Christians live in virtual reality, but there is no reality to their faith. They don't have a connection with God. They come to church, but this doesn't make you a Christian. They read their Bibles, but that doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. They pray to God, but that doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. You like what the pastor has to say, and that doesn't even make you a Christian. Believing in the name of Jesus Christ makes you a Christian, but the proof of belief is what you do next. Repentance isn't just something we say, I repent, and then we move on. Repentance is a lifestyle. And our citizenship, listen, you read the bulletin this morning, and I realize it's wordy, and I wrote that at 2.30 in the morning, so whatever. But the, the point is, we naturalize immigrants that come to our country. My grandfather, my grandmother, they were naturalized. Um, uh, people that come from other countries, they're naturalized. What does that mean? They're taught the customs and the traditions of the nation that they're coming to so that they would become loyal to that place. But some people doing all this, they're, they're, they're on a visa here. They're, they're on a... As it concerns their relationship with God, they're on a visa in this place, temporary visa, but they're still citizens of the world. The reality for all of us is we're supposed to be citizens of heaven on temporary visa here. This world ain't my home anymore, is it yours? Are you satisfied with this place? It boils down to your life. Do you trust Jesus? I'm not asking you, do you trust the religion of your daddy? I'm not asking, are you going along to get along with your father? I don't care what your father believes. I want to know what you believe. Are you trusting Jesus?
stand with me, please? I realize that the invitation has moved from unity to trusting Jesus, but you can't have unity in a body of Christ if the body of Christ isn't the body of Christ. If we're not unified in faith, So any unity that we may experience in the church begins with a relationship and unity with Jesus Christ through his blood. Have you trusted him today? Father in heaven, as we stand before you today sincerely, as we stand before you sincerely today, Lord, will you search us and and know us? More importantly, Lord, because you already know us, will you search us and show us what you see? so that today we might break the chains of bondage that we're in that Father God actually know so that you would break that we would submit the chains that we just hold our hands out in front of you and say you know what I've been believing the wrong things I haven't been walking in truth Father you break the chains today of those who are not trusting in you yet but are blinded by religion and so many other things tradition so many things that are blinding them to the one thing they desperately need. Will you break the chain today? Move them to a place of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and add them, Father God, by your grace to your family. I ask you to move among us this morning as only you can by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna ask you all to respond as the Lord leads you now.